space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to the Urantia Radio Podcast. Good to be back. Hope you had a good holiday. Well, a lot of good, exciting things coming up in the new year. Uh, Urantia Book Internet School is starting up again in a few weeks, so please go on the Urantia Foundation website. And if you want to be a part of a great experience, check it out, uh, Urantia Book Internet School. It's free. It's a six-week course. Uh, you review. They have uh, several different classes so that you can check out the one you want, subject matter, varying degrees of, of learning. So if you're a new reader, they have uh, classes that are set up for new readers, more experienced readers or longtime readers as well. And uh, the, the instructors are great, a lot of writing, a lot of good reading, and you'll walk away feeling a little bit better, not only about your understanding of the Arantia Revelation, but also of the people who uh, make up the community, the global community of Urantia readers. So how is it going out there for you is the big question. Um, nothing has changed on, on the social scene. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the COVID and how it's affecting everybody. So I hope that you, you and your family are safe and sane and getting through all the madness and the craziness. Um, a, lot of, a lot to discuss. I, I don't even know where to begin, but I do want to ask an initial question. Uh, I usually do one episode a week, if you know the rules of the Urantia Radio podcast. I try to keep it short, 25 minutes, n- no longer than 30 minutes in rare occasions, not because I don't have plenty of material to work with, because we know that's not true, but I also know that just from basically research that I've done, people generally like to have bite-sized stuff, because you can listen, you can go back and listen to all the archives uh, and it'll play continuously on things like TuneIn and Apple uh, iTunes or Spotify or Anchor.fm. It'll just play continuously if you set it up like that. So, so if you want more of it, it's there. But I always try to keep each episode under 30 minutes because that's about how long it takes for people when they go for a walk or if they're going for a drive. Or, you know, even really, reality, we're all very busy. Sometimes we don't have two hours to spend. So my question to you is, do you want more of these episodes per week? Would you read or would you listen or would you enjoy them if I had, uh, say, two of them a week as opposed to one? Or would that be too much? Do you like just the once a week or do you like maybe more episodes, more that we could talk about? Because there is, like I said, no shortage but, you know, I also uh, believe that, uh, you know, we don't I, – I, I guess I'm kind of open to what you think. So let me know, uh, radio at gmail.com, radio at gmail.com. So the big thing for me that I'm most excited about of recent, because it has a lot to do with the Urantia book, um, is the launch of the James Webb Telescope. And that's this uh, new telescope. They've had it around for a while. It cost about $10 billion to build. And it uh, it is been in use terrestrially. They've been using it 
for astronomers around the world who register to sign up and use it for specific projects they may be working on. But now they've launched it into space. And over the course of the last few days even, just recently, this is so brand new, hot off the presses, as they say, um, the, uh, the James Webb Telescope, JW Space Telescope, JWST, is now f- flying around and it's in an orbit and it's, it's going to be taking better pictures, infrared pictures uh, of deep space. They are going to get 10 times more clarity, in some cases 100 times the distance of what they've been able to get from the Hubble telescope. And uh, you know that we're, we're so close, I think, to getting to that point where we may, in fact, discover not one but many life forms, right? And that could further substantiate much of what, if the Arantia book truly is a revelation, and I believe I've got my hand raised, we got, just before I started doing this podcast, I was reading paper 57, and I'm going to share some of that with you. I may actually have to break this up into two different podcasts because there's a lot of exciting material, so we'll see how it goes. But the, uh, the exciting thing is this thing is going to detect, it's like going from uh, you know dial-up internet to high-speed. That's the difference between the Hubble and the James Webb Telescope. This telescope has got, uh, what is it, six meters? So what's that, 18, 20-foot wide lens. Imagine a camera lens with 20 feet, and it's also gold-plated, pure gold-plated. So its detection is so sensitive, and it will be able to reach out so far in space that they're saying this could see even farther to the the minutes after the Big Bang, which they, which uh, most scientists believe is about 13.8 billion years, which means they can only see 13.8. Our strongest telescopes today can only de- detect light that's 13.8 billion years, and that's a subject for a whole nother podcast because I've been really trying to figure out how they determine that they think the universe and the Big Bang, what they call the Big Bang, uh, is 30, uh, 13.8 billion years. When the Arantia book uh, emphatically states that Nebadon came into existence about 600 billion years ago. Big difference between 13.8 and 600 billion, wouldn't you say? But what if the James Webb Telescope reveals because it's more sensitive and it can detect light and infrared and certain light frequencies. What if it reveals that the universe is a hundred times bigger or farther or the furthest light goes back to 200, 300 billion years ago? That in itself will completely change the picture of astronomy and the way that we view the, the universe. Because, as you know, if you read the Arantia book, the, the description of the grand universe is one central orb or one system or one paradise, essentially, surrounded by the Havona worlds of one billion 
perfected spheres, uh, followed by the seven grand universes, of which ours is one, and it's named Orbinton. It's one of seven that spin, I think it's either counterclockwise or clockwise, around uh, Havona and around Paradise, which lies at the center of Havona. That is the, the description in Toto of the Arantia book and the grand universe. And then outside of the grand universe, where life is just starting to occur, there's activity, there's molecular activity that's occurring. Andromeda, for example, is in the outside. It's on the other side between that, I guess, invisible line, if you will, between the current grand universe and the master universe that encompasses the four outer rings of undeveloped space. So from a bird's eye view looking down, it's like a pinwheel with a central, cent- a central core, almost like a concentric circle, followed by seven dots that you would see. Each of those represent 100 trillion potential worlds. It's either 10 or 100. Uh, that's the grand universe of living existence right now. And our scientists say that our current universe is only 13.8 billion. Our planet, our sun, is 6 billion years old. So they're saying that our sun has been around exactly half the amount of time that the entirety of the universe has been in existence. What they say, 13.8 billion, right? So there's a big gap between what current science accepts as true, 13.8 billion, versus what the Arantia book says, which is completely, the scope of the, the largesse of the grand universe as described, if it is true, is much more spectacular. And I'm excited because I think the James Webb telescope will reveal that what we've been looking at in our local creation, as the totality of creation, is actually separated by large voids. That if you can see beyond, you know, the Arantia book says that the the actual area of our space came into existence about 20 billion years ago. We are part of the second family of suns that were produced by the Andronover Nebula that started that process 900 billion years ago, almost a trillion years ago, the nebula that produced our sun came into existence. When this group of specialized spiritual beings called the Master Physical Controllers started the early revolution of matter, spun it into, spun it into existence. They took all of the energy that comprised this, this region of space that was literally void of any real material and they somehow activated an energy swirl. And that, that swirl just grew and grew and grew until it, be, it, it became so heated and, and, and grand and the mass was so large that it started spitting off suns. There was a first initial stage, which I think spun off about, I want to say, 800,000 suns. And then our, our family of suns came into existence in this fourth stage or the last stage of, of this nebula that was able to produce all of these hundred thousands orbs, of which ours is one, which happened about 20 billion years ago. And then our sun finally became stable enough to produce its own solar system about seven to six billion years ago. 
And that's how we came into existence. Isn't that grand? And what science is about to learn, even if they don't learn what the Arantia book says to the T, they're going to get a bigger picture of what happens. They're so, they're so excited about this, by the way, that NASA hired 24 theologians to assess how people will react if alien life is ever discovered on other planets and to inquire as to how this would affect religion and the notion of the divine. Imagine, they're so excited, they're so keenly aware of the fact that what could be discovered that they actually went out and, and, and gathered theologians together and said, hey, if we discover life, how's that going to affect religion? How is that going to affect your, your, your flock? How, are, you going to, are they prepared emotionally? And of course, I'm thinking, you know, this is the age of Star Trek. This is the age of Star Wars. I don't think, I don't care how religious, unless you're in a, you know, an Aborigines in the outback in Australia, which you're not going to conceive anyway. You're not really going to grasp that concept. But I think, most, what do you think? You think most people today would be able to emotionally accept the concept of life? I think they would. I think, I think no different from when the Spaniards discovered the indigenous in South America in the 1400s, 15th century. Uh, yeah, so they had to bring together a group of, uh, of folks, and, and some of them said, look, uh, one gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist and Christian apologist, describes the anthropic principle as a, quote, principle that says the universe appears designed for the sake of human life, which has support, quote, from an unwavering and unmistakable trend line within the data. The more astronomers learn about the universe— and the requirements of human existence, the more severe the limitations they find governing the structure and development of the universe to accommodate those requirements. So if I'm reading this correctly, Ross doesn't believe, he, he, he believes that the universe is capable of, of producing life, but we are the only ones at this point. Because this specific kind of life was, was specifically designed by deity. That's his perspective. The anthropic principle suggests that the universe was designed for humans, with some scientists claiming that there are over 100 conditions that had to be precisely right in order for human life to emerge. Now, I, I, I do want to kind of bring in something else to this, because there was a, a gentleman at the, I think it's University of Boise, maybe, I'm not quite sure, I might have the email. Let me look and see if I do. But he's the one that was part of the group to uh, call the theological the theologians together to discuss, you know, is humanity prepared to learn about life in other worlds? I actually contacted him and I sent him a portion of paper 57. I might even read it to you if I can find it in time. But what I sent him was excerpts from paper 57 that describe the 600 or, or the different life forms that are out there. Uh, and I said, you know, there are already people on this planet who not only accept the life, that there's life outside of our universe, but we actually have a book that describes what that life is like. 
So I sent him excerpts on paper 49. Do you think he'll listen? By the way, I think his name is Davison. Anyway, we'll see if he responds. I think it's healthy to do that because some of these guys, you never know, maybe they're, maybe they're secret Urantia book readers and they just don't want to uh, admit it in academia because they're, they're worried they'll be seen as some sort of scientific heretic. But uh, it's worth noting that if this telescope, again, takes us to that next step of evolution, then that also poses the question, which is, is that why the Arantia book showed up when it did? To prepare us for this, to prepare enough, enough of us so that when we do either make contact or identify other life beings, we'll have an understanding of what to expect. For example, the Urantia book very clearly says that there is a world that uh, contains a group of or a species of non-breathers, one that is, quote, and I direct quote, in close proximity to your world. I believe I think that is in paper 49. But, uh, you know, many of us in the Urantia book community do believe as a revelatory document, it's also a preparatory document. It's preparing us mentally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually for even more revelations to come or preparing us so that we would be ready for those revelations and be able to interpret them. That's what I'm thinking. That's where my head is at. So I'm very excited about this JWST, the the, uh, possibility of learning not only how much larger the universe really is, and, and, and once again, confirming and validating the science of the Arantia book. That's what I hope. Um, but also the, the possibility that we're that much closer to deciding or, or, or discovering life on other planets. And we know from the Arantia book that there are plenty of lives or there are plenty of planets that contain evolutionary life. So I want to do this uh, because the article that I just read to you also contains the statements about the scientists currently believing that the Big Bang occurred 13.8 billion years ago. So I want to delve into paper 57, and we'll do that in the next podcast, uh, if you're interested, because I think there might be people who would be especially interested, but then others that can, can end it here and then move on to other topics that we want to discuss. But uh, stay tuned for the next podcast, where we'll talk about the Urantia Books version of the Big Bang and what really happened, the real story behind the emergence of creation. And that'll be coming up. In the meantime, I want to thank you as we begin a new year. A new year means new beginnings. And uh, we, amazingly, humanity is a, an astounding species. We adapt quite well. And uh, somehow the truth always emerges, and I'm see, seeing signs of real hope and optimism. Uh, in the people in my life, and hopefully in yours as well. And uh, please share this podcast with people. I think, we, uh, I think we're well beyond the stage of, of trying to keep this book obscure. People are dying for this message, especially with the James Webb Telescope. We're hungry for the truth. We're ready for it. That's why we're asking. That's why we sent this thing up here, because there are enough, enough people in ufology. We talked about this with Joel Gar- uh, Garbone or Garvin, uh, a couple of episodes ago. He presented a lot of this Urantia book information at a symposium that had to do with UFOs. 
and Alien Life. And man, talk about a, a great entry point. I, you know, they have a whole channel almost dedicated on the History Channel to ancient aliens. And every single one of those hour-long episodes is explained in the Urantia book. Not maybe to the uh, explanation that they, they suggest, but we already know that there were ancients, the Nodites, the Caligastian 100s. We already know about the Adamic plan of, of, of biological and spiritual uplifting. We already know about the Tablada, the te, uh, what's that, that site in eastern Turkey 12,000 years ago? Uh, I want to think. Tobebe Kleke. <laughs> I'm embarrassing myself. Uh, Albert Kasten would kick my butt. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's a site that, that proves that there was an ancient civilization when man was st- first learning how to mix bronze and steel or whatever he was doing. Um, anyway, so th- my point is that we are at a, a precipice where people are hungry for the truth. And there's a whole lot of truth to be found in the fifth epical revelation. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, and neither would I. And that's going to conclude this episode of the Arantia Radio Podcast. Until next time, God bless, Happy New Year, and we'll see you again soon. You're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. You feel so lost. So cut off, so alone. See, in all our searching, the only thing we've found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. Now, you go home. This was just the first step. In time, you'll take another. This is the way it's been done for billions of years. Small moves, Ellie. Though the dawn may be coming soon There still may be some time